Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Year. None of it, though, seems to have much effect on the trajectory of house prices. Recent data has showed these continue to increase sharply and the volumes of mortgage lending are picking up too. And one august body after another, from the EU to the OECD to the IMF, has warned that house prices in the UK are too high. So this week, the Governor of the Bank of England was expected to have another go at talking down the housing market. But there was a surprise. Wage growth, or rather, the lack of it. What does it all mean for interest and mortgage rates? Let's ask Azad Sangana, European economist at Schroeder's. Azad, welcome to The Money Show. On the whole, what did you make of Mark Carney's comments? You've just come from the Bank of England conference. Do you think rises in mortgage rates are more or less likely in the next few months than they were believed to be, say, a few days ago? I would say slightly less likely. Uh, it's clear that the, the Bank of England is quite concerned about the level of pay growth. Uh, yeah. None of it, though, seems to have much effect on the trajectory of house prices. Recent data has showed these continue to increase sharply and the volumes of mortgage lending are picking up too. And one august body after another, from the EU to the OECD to the IMF, has warned that house prices in the UK are too high. So this week, the Governor of the Bank of England was expected to have another go at talking down the housing market. But there was a surprise. Wage growth, or rather, the lack of it. What does it all mean for interest and mortgage rates? Let's ask Azad Sangana, European economist at Schroeder's. Azad, welcome to The Money Show. On the whole, what did you make of Mark Carney's comments? You've just come from the Bank of England conference. Do you think rises in mortgage rates are more or less likely in the next few months than they were believed to be, say, a few days ago? I would say slightly less likely. Uh, it's clear that the, the Bank of England is quite concerned about the level of pay growth uh, in the economy. The latest figures from the ONS showed that uh, pay growth actually fell in the uh, previous three months. And so we're struggling to see how the household sector can continue to expand and add pressure to the economy when wages have been so weak. Now, this contrast between employment growth, uh, there are more jobs, more people in work than ever, and wage growth, which has been very, very weak, uh, has been one of the features of this uh, economic recovery. How do you explain that? How can we have a situation where, where more people are working, 
but they're earning less. Well, I think partly because they're earning less, companies are happy to hire more people. But at the same time, productivity has been very poor. So companies, if you like, have had to hire more people just to maintain that same level of productivity. But you're right in saying that the weakness in wages is not a particularly uh, strong signal of a fast-growing labour market. Mark Carney has um, warned before that sort of runaway house prices do pose a threat to the the economy. He's concerned about growing uh, personal indebtedness. Is the wage problem now more important and more pressing issue for the Bank of England than the house price problem, if indeed there is a house price problem? I think for the Bank of England, they are becoming less concerned about the house price problem because they feel that they've taken steps to reduce the riskier types of lending that has been going on in the past, certainly before the financial crisis. And these were really the, the mortgage market review measures that were uh, introduced a few months back. The hope is that if there is no return to this risky type of lending, then the financial system uh, becomes less uh, systemically vulnerable to any major shocks globally. And so the The problem of high house prices is now a problem for the government and really a lack of supply problem rather than one of uh, interest rates and and mortgage rates. But for the labour market, this is something that they have to try to control because if they do suddenly see much faster wage growth in the future, given the the very low unemployment rates that we're, we're seeing coming through now, then this risks causing second round wage effects and more importantly, much higher inflation. So if interest rates aren't uh, aren't going to go up as soon as perhaps we thought they were um, a few weeks ago, and certainly they're not going to be used to cool the housing market, is it more likely that there'll be more of these so-called macroprudential measures of the type unveiled in June, uh, perhaps later in the year? They could be. Um, but again, it really comes down to the type of lending that the Bank of England sees as being conducted by the banking system. If you can show that uh, there is risky type of lending going on, then yes, that's exactly where uh, the, ty- the tightening of monetary policy would come from through the introduction of more macro prudential uh, policy. However, if, if, like as I'm saying, if this is really just down to a lack of supply and too many buyers, there's really nothing for the Bank of England to do until it becomes a systemic problem for the banking system. Okay, and finally, Azad, where's your money now for the first rise in interest rates? Well, we think that the Bank of England will raise interest rates uh, in February of next year, and they will then proceed with a 25 basis point or quarter of a percentage point rise every three months, coinciding with the inflation report months. Thanks very much, Azad. And there's more on this topic in this weekend's FT Money. And if you can't wait that long, there's extensive coverage of Mr Carney's comments on FT.com, while we have an entire page devoted to house prices on FT.com slash UK house prices. That's all one word. Still to come on the show, why it might be time to cut your fund manager some slack. But first, let's look at challenger banks. We know from complaints data that many people are unhappy with their bank. We know that the big banks have had to set aside vast amounts of money to compensate customers for mis-selling and market manipulation. And we know that for all their many misdemeanours, taxpayers still had to shell out billions of pounds to rescue several banks in 2008 because the economic risk of them collapsing was simply too great to contemplate. The government and the city regulators want to ensure that we never have to do that again. They also want better banks that are more responsive to customers. And one of the ways that they plan to achieve this is through more competition. 
Currently, four banks dominate the all-important current account market. Lloyds, RBS, HSBC and Barclays. Santander and Nationwide are next in the pecking order. Then there's the smaller banks and building societies like TSB or Cooperative or Yorkshire. And then behind them, there's the new institutions like Shawbrook, Aldermore, Handelsbank and Metrobank. They're small at the moment, but they are growing, and the regulators are making it easier to set up a new bank. So will these institutions make a difference, and are they really offering anything new? Joining me now is Charlene Goff, the FT's UK retail banking correspondent. Charlene, welcome to the show. I banded a few names about there. Can you talk us through who's who in the challenger bank sector? Yeah, well, there's a number of different types of challenger banks which have emerged uh, from the financial crisis. As you mentioned there, there's some new institutions that have been set up uh, in the past few years or merged from other sort of redundant or smaller lenders. And then you have the carve-outs. TSB, for example, which was separated from Lloyds Banking Group um, as a condition of its bailout. Um, Williams and Glynn's, which is still being carved out of RBS. Uh, So they're much bigger um, institutions. TSB has about 600 branches and sort of between four and five percent share of UK current accounts. So they well, they are still challenges, but they're sort of challenges with some scale. And then I guess you have the supermarkets and other retailers, which have increasingly come into mainstream banking. Tesco launched current account fairly recently. M&S did the same. Virgin Money is due to do so uh, later this year. So you've got a number of new providers coming in. Whether they can make a difference, I think... At the moment, there aren't two grand hopes that they will do. Um, We saw the Competition and Markets Authority come out a few weeks ago and say that, uh, you know, there were significant barriers to entry for these institutions. They had not yet succeeded at all in taking any meaningful market share from the top banks. What's the big selling point from a customer point of view? I mean, why should I move my account from Lloyd's, say, or HSBC to Metro or Handelsbank? well, I think one of the biggest selling points is just that they're not the biggest banks. You know, they they haven't had their reputation sort of dragged through the mud with all the mis-selling scandals, particularly payment protection insurance, um, interest rate swaps. And as yet, uh, not many of the challenger banks have. So, you know, there's that element that people potentially trust them more. Though they're also trying to carve out different niches for themselves. So Metro, for example, is competing on convenience. Its branches are open seven days a week, often 12 hours a day. TSB has tried to attract customers by promising a return to sort of traditional local lending. A number of them are prioritising service as well. Um, and also because they're smaller, they can be a bit more sort of tailored in their underwriting and potentially offer loans and mortgages to customers that might just be automatically declined by the biggest banks. And are they safe? I mean, if we cast our minds back to sort of 2008, uh, the Icelandic banks competed very aggressively for savings deposits. And then when they got into difficulties, people had uh, a nerve wracking few months while they waited to get their money back. I mean, are are all these institutions sort of robust and, and safe? Well, they're all covered by the deposit protection scheme, you know, in the same way that you'd get from from the big banks. They're also a lot better capitalised than banks, smaller lenders particularly, were in the run-up to the financial crisis. That's actually been quite an obstacle to these institutions launching, that these capital requirements have been really, really tough. So they have big buffers there against any potential losses. However, they're not as yet too financially strong. A number are still loss-making, don't expect to make a profit for some years. Um, That's, for instance, Metro Bank. 
TSB is profitable but reported a 20% fall in profits for the first six months of this year after it split from Lloyd's. So they are sort of battling with high costs and low profitability. The main weapon, if you like, for grabbing market share is current accounts. And yet overwhelmingly, um, current account banking is free, provided that you, you stay in credit. So how can these new entrants make enough profit to survive uh, given that they're, they're effectively going to be giving their main product away for free to a lot of people. Yeah, actually, that's uh, one of the biggest issues that's raised as to why they haven't been more successful and we haven't had more competition because it is very hard for new entrants to come into a market wherein the main product is essentially given away free and lots of the big banks make a loss on current accounts. They try to recoup it elsewhere. We have seen a couple of them charge for accounts. Tesco, for instance, charges unless you uh, make a minimum deposit each month. Um, Santander charges for its main one, two, three current accounts they are going down that road but that is pretty tough and they constantly say you know they would love free banking to disappear and that would help them and actually that's one of the potential consequences from the competition review and into current accounts some of the big banks have already warned that they just don't think free banking is sustainable if these authorities want to boost and drive competition that will be a very interesting debate thank you very much that was charlene goff the ft's uk retail banking correspondent We take a detailed look at challenger banks in our cover feature this week, including a look at the share price prospects of some of the quoted ones. FT Money is part of the Weekend FT, which is on sale on both Saturday and Sunday, and you can read online at any time. Just go to ft.com forward slash money. The Weekend FT is also available on mobile devices via a free web app in both Apple and Android versions. And we're always keen to hear your views. Have you had good or bad experiences of challenger banks? You can email us directly on money at ft.com. On to our final item for today. Over the first half of this year, money has poured into passive investment funds. These are products that simply track an underlying stock or bond index rather than trying to beat it. They have rock bottom fees because there is no highly remunerated manager picking shares for you. UK fund investors collectively now have around 10% of their assets in passive funds. In the US, the figure is higher still. And so far this year, that's been a good call. For much of 2014, the big companies that dominate indices like the FTSE 100 have performed better in share price terms than the smaller ones that many fund managers tend to buy. So passive funds have, in many cases, beaten active ones. But nothing lasts forever. Indices like the FTSE 100 are now struggling to make much headway. Active managers who can pick individual shares or choose to avoid sectors that they think have poor prospects say this plays into their hands. Are they right? Is it time to give much maligned active managers another chance? Emma Dunkley has more. Emma, first of all, why did big shares suddenly do better than smaller ones uh, at the start of this year? So it all really began in March in the US when there was a major sell-off in technology and social media stocks. And this sort of sparked a change in sentiment. As a result, many sold out of risk assets in general. So you saw a big sell-off in smaller capitalised companies. So that's low and mid-cap stocks. This really hit a lot of UK fund managers who tend to invest in a whole range of stocks and obviously select the ones they think are going to perform, but generally have a high weighting to small and mid-cap shares in the view that they will appreciate in price more than those established bigger stocks. So as a result of this, some fund managers panicked and switched out of some of their smaller mid-caps holdings 
into some of the larger stocks in the FTSE 100, for example, while others held tight and saw their fund performance take a massive hit. Other fund managers, meanwhile, bought into solid utilities companies, which were larger and less expensive. There was also a switch in style as well. So you saw a lot of fund managers change from investing in growth stocks that have performed well over the last couple of years into value stocks that were looking attractively priced. So what's changed? What's making people now think that the tables are turning and that the momentum is switching back to sort of the small and medium cap? Well, given the absolutely dire underperformance of active fund managers in the UK, now is actually a great time to be buying back into them as their shares are looking very cheap. And for those that kept hold of their positions in smaller mid caps, they could actually experience some kind of turnaround soon, especially if the economy continues to recover, as a lot of these smaller shares are more economically sensitive and, and are boosted by any economic rebound. On top of that, volatility has finally returned in the last few weeks. It's almost like the market has been playing catch-up with some of the political and economic macro situations that have been occurring over the past few months. So as a result, finally, the stock market has been a bit more volatile. This is actually a great environment for stock pickers, as they're able to select the best companies that they think can weather the storm and have a chance of outperforming the index. Whereas passive funds that literally follow the index up or down are more likely to experience this volatility as a result. Well, that um, brings us neatly on to whether the craze for, for passive funds is over now and whether people think that um, the active manager are actually going to earn their spurs. Do you think we'll see a slowdown in the inflows into passive funds, which have been very strong in the first half of the year? I don't think so. I think, if anything, passives still offer a lot of attractions, one being diversification, which is actually a major benefit in such instances where certain sectors or investment strategies are being hit. At the same time, these funds are very low cost, one of the cheapest being 0.07% a year, which is so much less expensive than the typical actively managed equity fund, which is about 0.75% a year. And just to add, it's not about passive or active. Therefore, even if there is some advantage in having an active manager right now, that doesn't mean you can't still have passive exposure in other areas within your portfolio. So for example, you might opt to have a passive index tracker in the US because a lot of actively managed funds fail to beat this benchmark. Whereas you might opt for an active fund manager in the mid cap space in the UK where arguably their stock-picking skills can really come into play and they can beat the market. Thank you very much, Emma. There's lots more on this in this weekend's FT Money. If you're interested in trading individual shares, you may be also interested in one manager's view that supermarket shares are the cheapest they've been for 20 years. We've also got comments on why the pension system is failing younger savers, why it's time to take a fresh look at Latin America, and why the gold price has barely budged despite six months of geopolitical turmoil. The Money Show will be back next week, but for now it's goodbye from me, Charlene, Emma and our special guest Azad Zangana. For more downloads go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Selling a little? 
or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.